everyone. This is Employment Notebook on localjobnetwork.com radio. Today we are talking about the Affordable Care Act from the individual's perspective. I'm Lynn Molitor from the Local Job Network. The Affordable Care Act is a U.S. federal statute signed into law by President Barack Obama on March 23, 2010. It represents the most significant regulatory overhaul of the country's health care system since the passage of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. The major provisions of the law will be phased in by January 2014. This episode will discuss the basics of this new law and how it will impact you, the consumer, directly. I'm hearing more and more about this health care legislation every day, but my own personal questions never get answered. So I asked two representatives from Infinity Benefits Solutions to join me in the studio today and give us a crash course on this healthcare law. Welcome Ken Marsh and Chad Winters. Let's start by having each of you tell us a little bit about yourselves and what you do at Infinity Benefits Solutions. Chad, please start us off. Well, my name is Chad Winters. I'm an employee benefit consultant for Infinity Benefit Solutions. I focus my area of practice in the group benefits market, and I um, specialize in the healthcare reform legislation and regulatory compliance, getting our clients, making sure they're compliant with the law and educated about the requirements of it. That sounds like you're the perfect person to talk with us today. Uh, Hope so. (laughs) And Ken? Hi, Lynn. I'm Ken Marsh, and with Infinity Benefit Solutions, I'm the Vice President of Sales and Account Management. And I have the opportunity to not only work with Chad, but also everybody on our team uh, in regards to employers and their benefit plan selections, as well as communicating important information uh, like we're talking about today with with the Affordable Care Act. All right, great. Well, I'm sure you are going to have a lot to share with us today. So let's step back and at a very high level, can you briefly describe the Affordable Care Act so the listeners and myself are on the same page with you, the experts? So what are the goals of the act for individual people? Well, in order to explain it briefly, I think it's important to recognize that individuals have traditionally received health insurance through a variety of ways, um, either through federal programs such as Medicare, Medicaid, um, on the individual market, or through an employer. With respect to individuals who get their plans on the individual marketplace, the goal of this law was to really increase access for those individuals who couldn't traditionally get insurance through the individual marketplace, either due to the affordability or lack thereof, or because they were uninsurable due to pre-existing conditions. So the goal of this law was really to open up access to the insurance marketplace for those individuals. I think that helps because I know me individually, I'm fortunate enough to get insurance through my employer, but I forget about all those people that, for a variety of reasons, they they still have an opportunity to get insurance, but it's not just not employer-funded necessarily. Exactly. And I would say one thing in addition to the affordability and the accessibility is also standardization of insurance policies across uh, different companies. So today, prior to this law going into effect, companies can offer all different types of coverages with different benefit levels. And once the law goes into effect uh, officially on 2014, you'll see a much more standardized type of insurance policy that has specific limitations for certain coverages that applies to all individuals, regardless of what carrier you're insured with. Oh, okay. Interesting. So how does that Affordable Care Act impact me as an individual? It's my understanding that individuals are already benefiting from the law. So can you tell us how? 
Well, since this law has been passed in uh, 2010, the, some of the market reforms that have occurred have been to um, make mandatory dependent coverage up to the age of 26. For the insurers, there's also something called the medical loss ratio. Uh, that is, for every dollar in premium, the insurance carriers are now required to spend a certain set amount. Oh, okay. So yeah. that was a big change. You saw over the course of the last two years, large amounts having to be paid back by the insurance carriers to employers to distribute to employees because they miscalculated the amount they need. Oh, so so in other words, a, a company can't like keep the excess money. They have to return it to the... To the individual. Right. The insurance carrier has to pay or can only spend a certain amount or keep a certain amount for administrative costs. Ah. And they have to spend the rest on actual providing care. So when that was instituted, there was a lag for the insurance carrier to catch up to what actually they needed to. And then just to point out a lot of the changes that in the individual marketplace are actually going to go into effect on January 1st, 2014. So there have been a lot of changes that have affected the insurance carriers. Oh, uh, moving okay. forward now, it's really going to see where you see how it affects individuals at the individual level. Oh, okay. Let's talk about the pre-existing health condition. So if I've not been able to get insurance in the past due to a pre-existing health condition, I can now, Correct. That's correct. Uh, as of January 1st of 2014, medical conditions will no longer be a criteria for developing a premium for either an individual or for a small group. Oh, okay. So that actually hasn't gone into effect yet. That's correct. Oh, I didn't even realize that one. That, okay. That, so if you're an individual upon renewal of your insurance coverage, January 1st, 2014, or later, depending on when your policy actually renews. So, for example, if your policy renewed in June mm -hmm. of 2013, the changes that are happening for January 1st of 2014 will actually go into effect for that individual next June of 2014. Oh, okay. So there'll be a little catch-up. That's correct. Okay. So how is it different then when I'm applying for insurance? I just don't have to tell the insurance company my medical history anymore? Well, in the individual and small group market, the only information that you're going to be able to base a premium on is age, geographic location, tobacco usage, and what type of plan you're looking at. So whether it's a single or a family plan. Wow. So oh, those are the four parameters. Basic, basic. So am I now required by law to have health insurance coverage as of? 2014? Well, today is November 18, 2013. So as of today, <laughs> yes, beginning January 1st of 2014, you will be required to have minimum essential coverage. There is some safe harbors in the law that allow you to not carry coverage for certain time frames. But if you don't carry coverage for a period of three consecutive months, you will be looking at paying a tax the following year. Ah, Okay. So would it be safe to say by January 2015, everyone should have insurance coverage? I, I think that's the idea behind the mandate, whether <laughs> the or not idea. they do. The penalty for the first year is, um, I don't want to say it's not minimal, but it is $95 or 1% of gross income. Oh, okay. And then it's phased in over the course of three years. Um, in 2016, it will be 2.5% of gross income or $695 for singles. $600 sounds like I would feel that a little more than maybe $95. Yes. 
So um, many employers provide insurance coverage at work. What if my employer does not offer insurance? Does that mean that I have to purchase it myself under this new law? That's correct. And actually, those are the discussions that are going on right now with many employers is, do they continue to offer group insurance traditionally like they have up to this point? So employers that choose not to offer coverage or discontinue their current coverage, really the individual mandate exists as of January 1st, 2014. Individuals are required to have health insurance. So if they don't have it available through their employer, they will have to purchase this coverage through an individual mean. Right. So, okay, let's talk about the health insurance marketplace. Let's start with what's the difference between federal health insurance exchanges and state exchanges? So states have the option to choose if they will be implementing the exchange. And it's also known, commonly referred to as a marketplace. Okay. So it's an additional source for either an individual or a small group to purchase their health insurance. Whether it's called a marketplace or exchange, they are in fact the same thing. All right. States have the the option to choose, do they want to manage the the exchange and fund it and and properly see that it's complying with all the requirements or defer to the federal government? And of course, in Wisconsin, we have a federally based run exchange. Okay. But states ultimately had the option of whether it would be that they would run it or that they would defer it to the federal government. And so what are some of the states that decided to do it on their own? I think was Washington one? Washington, I'm a guess. Oregon, <laughs> California. Colorado. Colorado, Vermont. Um, there were 33 states that set up that requested federally facilitated exchanges. There were six that are doing some type of state federal partnership. and 11 um, that are doing state-run exchanges. So if people are like listening to national news, they do need to keep in mind where they live and what they're hearing on the news may apply to them or may not apply. Yeah, I think the big thing is um, when looking at whether it's a state-run exchange or a federally facilitated exchange is, as we know, the glitches on the website. Yes. So... (laughs) The state-run exchanges have had, some of them have had more success. Oregon, unfortunately, has not had any success. They have not been able to um, use their exchange at this point. But states, New York is a state-based exchange. They're having some um, degree of success. I know California's had some success as well. Well, there's hope out there. The exchange or the marketplace. So this is where I go to get an insurance quote. Correct. As well as apply for insurance and actually obtain the insurance is through the exchange. Okay. One-stop shop. Yeah. And it's important to note that not only is there the government-run exchanges, but there are there is still individual market for private insurance. So if you don't choose to go through the marketplace, you can still buy an individual plan outside the marketplace. Oh, that's good. So those would be the people who, for example, they're self-employed today and they went and shopped around themselves five years ago for a plan. So however they did it five years ago, in theory, they could still shop around like that. Right. And one of the main attractions of the marketplace would be the advanced premium tax credit, which is only available on the marketplace. So that's a subsidy for somebody to purchase insurance who fits within a certain range of income. And now if you buy um, private insurance, you don't have access to those subsidies. Oh, interesting. So this would be a possible incentive to get you onto the marketplace. That's correct. And not do it private. 
So uh, is it difficult choosing insurance from a marketplace? Aside from the website, you know, I'm not like looking at it from that. I just mean, you know, for whatever you have to input and look at the options, is it hard or? The intent of the marketplace is really to provide the direction to the consumer. And so when all is said and done, the ultimate goal is, is that it will be a relatively easy process for somebody to go out to the exchange, uh, take a look at the rates, the plans, the, the different carriers that are on the exchange, and ultimately select a plan. I mean, that is certainly the goal of the exchange once everything is up and running uh, as it should be. Uh, and I think today what we're hearing is there are some issues certainly with that process right now. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the feedback that we're hearing. Uh, as well as it's it's just not running the way that it should be at this point. Right. How much time does it take to select a plan? I mean, how you know, if I were to sit down and allocate myself some time to review everything, what would you suggest I do? Well, one thing you could do is work with a broker who oh, okay. is in the profession of offering recommendations based on lifestyle, based on what type of plan you're looking for, the objectives you have in getting insurance. You know, that's really oh. our role as brokers um, oh, that's good to, to help know. facilitate individuals. So you would help individuals as well as employers? Yes. So you would highly recommend that, right? Yes. Because in theory, this could take a long time to kind of weed through everything, couldn't it? It certainly could. And just to kind of clarify the point as well, and that is, is that agents, insurance agencies and insurance brokers, if they're licensed to, can also apply for coverage for the individual or secure coverage via the exchange as well. So it's on the exchange and off the exchange, at least that our agency is able to do for, for individuals and groups. Oh, very interesting. Okay. So generally speaking, what are the monthly costs? Do I just go around shopping for packages based on my specific needs. Although I think there's some minimums. Whether I need them or not, I'm going to get them, right? Right. And it depends, again, whether or not you fall into the category of people who are going to qualify for a subsidy. The qualification for a subsidy ties your premium amount to a certain percentage of your income. Oh, okay. So, for example, if you're making, and the, the, the range, is, it's 100% of the federal poverty level to 400% of the federal poverty level. For 2013, on the individual, that would be up to $45,960. For a family of four, it's $94,400. So, if you're looking at paying a percentage of your income as premium, mm-hmm. you could go based off of what your income level is, if that oh, makes sense. Oh, yeah. Okay. So like an indiv- for an individual, what is the that poverty level? Well, if you're making 100% of the federal poverty level or around $12,000, oh, okay. you would uh, pay 2% of your income to premiums. That would be the okay. max you would contribute. And then the um, federal government would subsidize the remainder of the portion and pay the insurance carrier directly. Ah, okay. All right. So subsidies. You've mentioned subsidies. So I just want to clarify again, just so I'm on the right page. Not everyone qualifies for a subsidy, it sounds like. That's correct. If you are making more than 400% of the federal poverty level, you would not qualify for a subsidy. Okay. Or so- if you have a, if, or if you are eligible to enroll through a federal program, Medicare or Medicaid, you also would not be qualified for a subsidy. And if you had an employer who offered insurance and the offer of insurance was affordable and met minimum value standards, you would then therefore not be eligible for a subsidy. Say I do receive a subsidy or I do qualify for a subsidy. So how do I get it? That is actually um, something that 
as of today is still outstanding as far as how that will will happen from either a reimbursement perspective or if a member will submit their expenses for a reimbursement or if it will happen automatically. And I think the the idea and one of the problem, one of the issues the website's having is that it has to speak to so many different entities. Sure. Um, So the idea being that the insurance carrier, you would buy a product from the insurance carrier, and then the insurance carrier would uh, invoice the individual for their portion of the premium and then receive the remainder from the government. So you're not going to have the individual be a vehicle to pay the complete premium. It would be the insurance carrier receiving the portion of the premium from the government and from the individual. It's not a reimbursement program to the individual. It's two entities paying separately. Right, yeah. Two entities paying separate to equal the whole amount that's due. That's correct. It's not like your taxes where they withhold taxes from our check and then if we've paid in too much, we well, we get a... Or <laughs> actually, that kind of is the way with the advanced oh. premium tax credit because it's based on income at the end of the year. So you're projecting forward what you believe oh. your income's going to be. So if you overstate your income, you could see a larger reimbursement at the end of the year. If you understate your income, they will take the money from your tax return that they overpaid, and they being the federal government. Right. So that's interesting. So say I... I think I'm gonna do so. You know, I'm gonna make twenty thousand this year, and then I'm self-employed, and then maybe I get a big contract or something. And oh, lo and behold, I've actually made thirty thousand. This was a good year for me. All of that gets figured at the end, not based on my estimate at the beginning. Yes, but the the premiums are paid as you go, and so your premiums are reduced based on your estimate, right? From your income, and then at the end of the year. It's adjusted accordingly. Ah, there's a reckoning at the end of the year. And they will, when you when you do apply, they will go to the IRS. One of the places, one of the places, the hub has to send information to is the mm-hmm. IRS. And then another um, place is um, Equifax, a credit agency. Oh, okay. Who has more up to date information about how much money people are making? They really want to just have a quick way, and quick, right, <laughs> a, yeah. a way to check that what you're attesting is accurate. And oh. if it's way out of proportion to what your last yeah. year's returns were, they'll ask for some further evidence, or that's supposedly yeah. the way it's supposed to work. So one of the lessons here is people don't provide answers that you think there's no way they'll be able to verify this stuff, because there's a lot of checks and balances that are going to be programmed into the system to verify that the information you've supplied is, in fact, the truth by the end of the year. That's the idea. So I did hear that if I don't have insurance, that I'll be subject to a penalty. Is this true? It's not a penalty. It's a tax. Oh, (laughs) Oh, you got me on that one, Chad. You're right. It's a tax. Um, You will be. Um, They would either through your W-2 or your tax return know whether or not you had minimal essential coverage plus insurance. In addition to that, insurance carriers have to provide the government with a list of everyone that's covered, that they cover. Um, There's also some employer reporting requirements. So if you are getting employer-sponsored insurance, that would help facilitate and um, help the uh, government administer that individual mandate. Insurance can be expensive, right? So what happens if I can't afford it? Even though you gave me those guidelines that, you know, 1%, 2% of my income. 
too bad? Well, there is if <laughs> if the lowest premium you can get as an individual is more than eight percent of your modified adjusted gross income from your household. Yeah, you are exempt from having to pay the penalty. Oh, I'm exempt from paying the penalty. So if I don't have insurance, I don't have to right. pay the penalty, and obviously I'm not paying the paying for insurance or so. So yeah, there's okay. it's, it's an eight percent threshold. All right. Is it cheaper to pay the penalty rather than buying insurance in some cases? Could this be true? That first year, that $95 doesn't seem like much of a penalty to me. Yeah, I think, I mean, or that's- Or a tax. I'm sorry. That's, it's a tax. <laughs> right. I think that's the million dollar question. And I think that's going through a lot of individuals' evaluation right now. And certainly a $95 tax uh, compared to, you know, you, you've asked, well, what will a typical premium cost or an individual policy cost, and certainly it will be more than $95 a year uh, for a health policy. So I think that that question is being asked right now. Uh, And certainly the intent of the Affordable Care Act is to get as many individuals that are uninsured into the pool, right? right? I mean, it's very important that the vast majority of individuals have insurance. That's just good from a lot of different areas. And the question at this point is how many will pay the tax versus obtain the coverage um, under the new guidelines. And then there is also the uh, issue of no pre-existing condition um, as an exclusion to getting coverage. So you're going to have a basic, you could be faced with a basic free rider problem. Somebody goes without insurance until they need insurance and then calls to get insurance. Uh, they haven't been paying the monthly premium. They're going to be subjected to the tax on a prorated basis, but something came up. So there is potentially that issue uh, that insurance carriers are concerned about and can't right. really price. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. There's a lot here. So um, how does all of this impact me if I'm on Medicaid or Medicare? And I don't really know these programs, but I'm asking it from the perspective of our listeners out there who are on Medicaid or Medicare. Well, with respect to Medicaid and Medicare, the bill doesn't specifically impact it directly unless you are in a state that accepted the Medicaid expansion. So more people could have access to Medicaid. Um, With more people having access to Medicaid, some providers um, have a limit on how many Medicaid patients they might see. So it might impact them through that way, not directly, but indirectly. In addition to that, as I think stated earlier, um, if you are on a federal program, you are ineligible to receive an advanced premium tax credit on the um, health insurance marketplace. And that's a subsidy? That would be the subsidy, yes. Okay. So with this act, is it fair to say that people may have qualified for Medicaid or Medicare and they didn't realize it until they went into the to the exchanges to yeah, kind of go shopping? and An early story out of uh, Vermont or Maine uh, was that 26,000 people had signed up. Of those 26,000, 21,000 were Medicaid eligible. Uh, and they had no clue before? Either they had no clue or they hadn't qualified before because... Oh. It was Medicaid was a set to 100% of the federal poverty level, and the state ex- chose to expand it to 133% ah. of the. Oh, okay. So, and then the numbers that came out recently reinforced that that were released by the government. Well, I don't know how you guys stay on top of this. <laughs> my wife gets to watch a lot of news with me. And I... <laughs> so, should I stay on my employer's plan or go to the health insurance marketplace if I'm given that choice? Yeah, generally speaking, uh, it's going to be better for an individual to remain on their employer's plan. Uh, If the employer offers a plan that's affordable and it's considered a qualified health plan, uh, which most plans certainly will be, the subsidy and tax credit are not available to that individual if they go to the exchange. 
So oh, if, that's right. Yep. So if a qualified plan is offered, they can certainly go to the exchange and, and purchase their coverage. Uh, however, there would be no tax credit and or a subsidy. Okay. I'm currently on my spouse's plan, and so I waive coverage for my employer. So can I still continue to do that under the Affordable Care Act? You can. And um, what we're hearing more and more from employers, however, uh, is something that's referred to as either a spousal surcharge or a spousal carve-out. And as long as your spouse's employer still uh, allows that to happen, then you certainly, that you are in compliance with the law. Uh, And if the employer decides to charge your spouse more money, uh, referred to as a spousal surcharge, that's up to you. And then a spousal carve-out would require you to actually obtain obtain coverage through your employer now. Through my own employer. That's correct. So that would be something that married couples should kind of pay attention to. If some, if one, the primary person's employer starts sw- switching some rules, and that's usually if both spouses have employer-offered insurance. Mm-hmm. So it would be if your spouse, if your employee spouse's employer offers insurance, then that would take effect. Will insurance be less expensive once the law takes into effect? I'm sure that's the big question. The answer is yes and no, and uh, and what will happen is is that some individuals and small groups uh, premiums will increase, and some individuals and small groups will decrease. And the whole um, the whole issue of how a group and an individual is rated to determine cost, um, you know, going back to review that we have geographic area, whether there's tobacco usage, uh, the location of, of certainly the group, and then the the uh, plans that are selected, whether it's an employee or employee spouse. Some groups today are higher risk and their rates will come down. And some groups oh. are lower risk and those, their rates will go up. And so you'll see, you'll see both, uh, both things happening. And then on the individual level, um, for those people who have their own insurance, their own individual plans, it really depends on how you're defining less expensive. Um, <laughs> if somebody qualifies for a subsidy, that oh. insurance is going to look like it is less expensive. However, if you look at the whole premium, uh, combining what that individual is actually paying and what the federal government is subsidizing, it might not be less expensive. Right. Well, we have barely touched the surface of this topic, but we have run out of time. But if people have additional questions, it sounds like you can uh, help them out. So how can they contact you? Oh, they can give me a call. Infinity Benefit Solutions, we have, uh, you can reach us through our website, um, www.infinitybenefitsolutions.biz. Otherwise, we are available by phone. So I sure learned a lot today, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Thank you to my guests, Ken Marsh and Chad Winters, for helping us better understand the Affordable Care Act. If you have ideas for future topics of Employment Notebook, please drop me a note at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. I'm Lynn Molitor on localjobnetwork.com radio. Thanks for listening. (music) 